It's not about what does the church think. It's about what does the Bible say. That's it. Now, you can say you don't believe in the Bible, fine. But this is not an argument over what I think is morally right versus what you think is morally right. This is simply us as a people of God saying we believe the Word of God on the authority that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore what He says is what matters. And the role of any good pastor, and I would say any true Christian, brothers and sisters, our role is not to be giving the world our opinions. Our role is to know what this says and simply tell people what this says. The Bible itself tells us that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Paul says this two times in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ did not rise, then our faith is futile. The entire Christian faith rests completely on the fact that Jesus came back from the dead. Today, Pastor Joplin demonstrates the undeniable historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But of even greater importance, if Christ rose from the dead, that means that he alone stands as the authority on eternal matters. In other words, if Jesus defeated death, then what he said matters more than what anyone else says or thinks. So what did Jesus say? Listen in today's message to hear seven of Jesus' most significant statements directed at you. Did you know that the Bible itself declares that the whole thing is a fraud if Jesus hasn't risen from the grave? The Bible itself, that's what we are reading right now, tells us if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Our preaching's in vain. Our faith is futile. The Bible's a very honest book that recognizes the facts. I want to look at this statement in verse 20, but in fact. I want to look at the facts of the resurrection this morning on the first half of this sermon, and then I want to look at the implications of those facts on the back half of the sermon. Paul says it is a fact, the resurrection of Jesus, and in Paul's time, it was a well-accepted fact. There were rumors that had been started by a handful of folks that tried to explain away the resurrection, but it was a well-known fact that Christ had risen from the dead. And what I want to do today is look at some of those facts that Jesus has risen from the dead. You might be surprised to know that you do not need to believe that this is the Word of God you do not need to believe that the New Testament is the inspired Word of God to reasonably and rationally prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I believe this is the Word of God, and I believe the New Testament is the inspired Word of God, just like the Old Testament. I'm just going to, I'm showing you this morning here in the next several minutes to follow that the reasonable, provable, factual evidence points to Jesus rising from the dead. And I'm going to do so by only talking on three things that all reasonable scholars agree on, including those who do not believe in the New Testament, including those who do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. Yet they still acknowledge these three facts 
critical New Testament scholars. Number one, that the tomb was empty. I'm going to show you it's impossible to not reasonably conclude that. Number two, that the disciples believed they had seen the risen Lord. And number three, that the church was established on the heels of the resurrection in the very community of the resurrection. And, and we're going to see why the explosion of a church lends credibility to the resurrection of Jesus. But those three facts are widely accepted by anybody that's reasonable. The tomb was empty. Let's start there. The tomb was empty. This is an accepted fact about the tomb. Now, what is the evidence? Well, first of all, the preaching or proclamation, if you will, that the tomb was empty happened in the same town that Jesus was buried. Now, if it had happened, you know, 500 miles away, 1,000 miles away, somewhere else around the world, and the original story came from a group of people that were trying to convince everybody that somewhere, thousands of miles away, somebody was raised from the dead. We'd say, well, how do you know? Where'd you get your information? You got any eyewitnesses? But the original message of Jesus' resurrection took place in the very place he was buried. Obviously, if he was still there, if the tomb wasn't empty, all the people would have to do is walk over, look at the tomb, and say, nope, he's still here. You guys are crazy. We don't know what you're talking about, but you're nuts. However, everybody in the community widely knew the tomb was empty. Number two, second evidence for an empty tomb. The Jewish people acknowledged the empty tomb. Now, here's why this is significant. The Jewish people rejected the message of Jesus. In fact, it was the leaders of the Jews that were uh, in cohorts with the Roman government to have Jesus crucified. And then we find later that is, uh, when the disciples are preaching that Jesus has risen from the dead, the Jewish leaders are telling them, quit preaching in the name of Jesus, quit saying that he rose from the dead, and the disciples are saying, look, whether we're going to obey you or God, what do you think we're going to do? We're going to obey God. Jesus rose from the dead. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Now, the Jewish people then came up with this lie that the disciples had stolen the body. We're going to look at that in a little bit. But here's the point. Even the Jews acknowledged there was nobody in the tomb anymore. And when you have, uh, this is kind of a legal argument here, when you have someone who is opposed to what you're trying to proclaim, acknowledging one of your facts, that's strong evidence the fact is a fact. And so even the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people recognize an empty tomb. We have records in the second century of a Jewish rabbi debating a Christian pastor, and they debate this topic on how the tomb was empty. The point simply being, even the Jewish people who were hostile to the message of Christ, hostile to the message of his resurrection, acknowledged that the tomb was empty. Number three, the Gospel of Mark, which records an empty tomb, was written about seven years after 
One way to word this is within seven years of the resurrection. Now, all data, all scientific things that they use to determine and date the age of documents, all of it leads to the gospel of Mark being finished within seven years after Jesus' resurrection. Again, in the exact same land where all the people lived. It's just evidence it was widely accepted the resurrection had happened. Could you imagine if us that live here in Derby and have been here for the last 10 years or a lifetime, could you imagine if a letter started circulating that said that seven years ago somebody rose from the dead down in the graveyard? We'd all say, uh, nope, I was here. Didn't happen. Were you here? Didn't happen. Were you here? Didn't happen. Were you here? But we see the gospel of Mark widely accepted, written seven years after these events, another simple thing to point to. The final thing being uh, uh, validating the gospel of Mark is that there's no legend like build up to his resurrection. Um, the, one of the things that's often consistent in writings that are false, uh, writings that are legendary is that they add crazy legendary stuff. I'm going to give you an example. The Gospel of Peter. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. About 10 years ago, there was this big to-do about the Gospel of Peter that supposedly was the lost, one of the lost Gospels. And, and, and you know, people who really don't study these things are like, whoa, we're missing something. Let me tell you what the Gospel of Peter says about the resurrection of Jesus. All of the Jewish leaders, Roman guards, and many people from the countryside gathered to watch the resurrection. Apparently, they all knew it was going to happen. Then, three men came out of the tomb with their heads reaching up to the clouds. Then, a talking cross comes out of the tomb. Yeah, that's the gospel of uh, Peter, folks. When people ask me about it, I'm like, obviously you haven't read it. You want to know how it's fake? I mean, I just read you like three sentences from it. It's nuts. That, though, is an example. When you look at legendary writings, that's an example of what happens when over time people are making stuff up that's just like trying to create legend. When you look at the Gospel of Mark, and all the Gospels for that matter, but Mark's the one that we're focusing on, there's none of that. I mean, it's just plain. It's just simple. The man died. He was crucified. He was buried. And on the third day, he came back to life. And that's it. No legendary pieces of information. It's just consistent. Uh, one of the fourth... Um, reasons that we can trust in the empty tomb is that it is uh, indisputably accepted that the original message came from women. And in this era of time, just the way that it was in Jewish customs, the testimony of women alone was not really acceptable as a final and true testimony in court. And yet, the fact that this is what it points to. 
it points to somebody being super truthful. In other words, if somebody was trying to make something up that would be believable, they're going to make sure that it's men that are telling it. That's just, just the reality of it. In this era of time, that's going to offend a bunch of people, but that is the reality of history and facts in this era of time. If somebody was making this up and trying to come up with some make-believe story, the last thing in the world they would do is start it off with women being the ones who make this great announcement. It is for this reason that any, let me reword that, it is for this reason that the extreme majority of critical scholars, regardless of what they believe, acknowledge the tomb was empty. It is incredibly difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. You know, there are various theories. You've heard of the body being stolen, maybe. But even those theories are laughed at by most serious scholars. The Jews and Romans had no motive to steal the body. I mean, why would they steal the body? What would be the motive of that? And then the disciples are preaching that he rose from the dead and the church catches on fire and everybody is teaching that Jesus rose from the dead and the Jews and the Romans want him to quit. So if they stole the body, why wouldn't they just drive a stake through his feet, bring him and hang him upside down in the street and say, here's your risen savior. They didn't have a body. They didn't steal the body. So then the other theory is the disciples stole them. That's also so preposterously stupid. It doesn't even make sense. How would they get past the guards? Why would they steal him? Uh, they believe, it's clear that they believed in his teachings. They had left their homes and their life to follow him. It's just, it starts to defy logic and reason when we start to come up with explanations. And so then the question comes, why? To these critical New Testament scholars, why then was the tomb empty? And almost all of them will admit the truth they don't know. Now, they're not willing to say he resurrected. All they're willing to say is, we know the tomb was empty, and we don't know why. It's interesting to me how people can be so set on refusing to believe, no matter what the facts actually lead to. The second fact is that the disciples believed they had seen Jesus after he had risen from the dead. This is an indisputed fact. And here's the way that the critics word it. It is a fact that the disciples believed they saw Jesus. They do not acknowledge the disciples did see Jesus, but only that they believed they saw Jesus. Well, how is this possible? Some scholars say, eh, they didn't actually believe they saw Jesus. They just convinced people of that. They lied. This is a really crazy theory that the disciples all lied. But that's the theory, that after Jesus died, they all got together in a big huddle and said, look, we've got to convince the world that he's alive, and the easiest way to do that is to tell the whole world we talked to him, we saw him, and they conspired together. Here's the problem with that theory. They all died for it. People don't die for something they know is false. Especially 10 of them. Horrible deaths. Violent. 
given the opportunity to recant, to simply say, you did not see the risen Lord and you will live. Some of them, their own family members were killed in front of them. How do you get 10 people? They weren't all together when it happened. They weren't all looking at each other, making sure nobody didn't tell. 10 people over the course of multitudes of years, all to die in different places, different circumstances for a lie that they had made up. It defies logic. I mean, literally, you have to start taking reason and throwing it in the trash. So that's indisputable. They thought, they believed they had actually seen the risen Christ. So then somebody steps in and says, well, the only rational argument here is they all hallucinated. Yes, this is an argument. But there is real study on hallucination. Real statistical data on hallucinations. And there are some very huge problems with trying to say that they all hallucinated. Number one, they claimed to have actually touched him. To have sat down and ate dinner with him. This is not consistent with hallucinations. They are not long-term. The greatest problem is multitudes of people all had the same hallucination at the exact same time. Something that else has never happened anywhere else in history and is impossible to demonstrate. That's just not the way hallucinations work. The hallucination theory is insane. And so when you ask critical scholars, and these are things, facts, brothers and sisters, when you ask critical scholars, well, then what happened? Why did they think they had seen the risen Lord? Here's the answer. They don't know. But they do not deny from a truly uh, logical, reasonable, scholastic approach. They do not deny the disciples believed they'd seen the risen Lord. And then number three... The third uh, accepted fact of this time that matters is the extreme growth of the church. Now, let me explain why that is a significant fact. So the church started about approximately a month and a half, two months after the resurrection of the Lord. And it started... In Jerusalem, the city where all this went down. And thousands of people all turned to this faith that Jesus had risen from the grave. How can you explain such a thing? How could you take a community like the size of Derby, for example, and all of a sudden, in two months, Thousands of people are all saying they saw the same thing, witnessed the same thing, experienced the same thing, and this thing happened. How could you have that without, now here's the kicker, without the people at least truly believing what they had faith in? Now, when you take those three things, all of these things are facts of history that are accepted. They are three, what we will call, independent facts. And they are unexplainable. How could a church just blow up? They don't know how, they just know it did. How could the tomb be empty? They don't know how, but factually, they can't deny it. How could the disciples truly believe they saw the risen Christ? They don't know, but it's evident it's true. That's what they thought. Now, when you're dealing with like stuff in the court of law, 
It's one thing when you have one unexplainable mystery, but when you have three, and you start to put them all together, it begins to form a case. I would word it this way. The difficulty of looking at just these three facts. So let's just say, you know, you're trying to say uh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead because his body was stolen. Okay, let's just give you that fact over here. We've already demonstrated totally nonsense, but let's just give it to you. What are you going to do now? I mean, how, how do you deal with the disciples? Um... They hallucinated. Oh, okay. Now it's getting real crazy. What do you do with 5,000 people from the same exact location all turning to faith in this risen Christ over the course of the next two months? Hmm. When you start to take all three of those things and put them together, it becomes indisputable evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Let's advance this morning's message. You know, I just spent about 10 minutes, I think that was 10, 10 or 15 minutes, really providing indisputable facts that no rational person can dispute. You don't have to be a Christian to believe the stuff that I just told you. You just have to be a person that believes truth, that believes history that believes what is documented and provable. It's fascinating to me, though, how quick we as people are to believe anything that we hear. To, it's just, the, I hear some of the most wildest things that are said. It's like, where do you come up with this? Can anybody just say what they want? One of the most recent things is that really, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus is just legend. It's as easily provable false as everything else that I just did. Legend. You know, they point to that um, there were other influences in the world around that period of time that spoke about sons of gods that rose from the dead. You know, if you actually look at the facts and you're willing to do your own research, you will find that those stories never made it to Palestine until... The second century. Those stories came after the disciples are preaching about the resurrection. Not before. There is no historical evidence that outside influences or stories of God, you know, sons of God's being resurrected was ever known, spoken about, or recorded in Jerusalem at any period in time before the resurrection. And yet, you could probably Google today and find somebody try to tell you, oh, these are stories that everybody knew, and this is just their version of it. It's just false. Legend. You know, it takes time for legends to build. How do you get a church of 5,000 people two months afterwards built upon a legend? It's just nonsense. And so now I ask the question, why then don't people believe in the resurrection? Why? There are people right now under the sound of my voice that even you, if you're, if you're honest with yourself, you don't need to raise a hand up, but if you're honest with yourself, you question it a little bit. You wonder, did it really happen? Jesus really raised from the dead? 
Are these just stories that we've been told and believed for no reason? Now, I want to ask the question, why do we so quickly go there? Why are we so quick to hear something stupid like the body was stolen and just accept it? No research, no critical thinking. Why are we so quick to hear crazy stuff like maybe the disciples had a hallucination and just all of a sudden think, well, that's maybe an answer, without even thinking it through? Why? The ultimate answer is because we don't want to accept that Jesus is God. And we don't want to accept that what he says matters. We want to just put Jesus in a category over here with the other religious leaders. Jesus doesn't even fit into that category. He stands all alone by himself. Every other religious leader, I don't like using that term for Jesus, but Every other religious leader is dead. They're still in the tomb. We can go to the tomb of Muhammad or Confucius or Gandhi or you name it. They're dead. So we have to square with the fact that there's only one who rose from the dead. And what's wild is he told us he was going to do it before he did it. And then he did it, proving, as Paul said, in fact, that Christ has risen from the dead. And so this is what matters, brothers and sisters, what the one who rose from the dead says. Let me ask you a question. Who do you want to trust with your soul? Who do you want to trust with the truths of heaven and hell and eternity? Because these are all questions we all wonder about. We all wonder. There's not a person in here who's been to heaven. We wonder. So we must hear from someone else and trust what we're told about the afterlife. Trust what we're told about judgment and heaven and hell. And all of us must trust something or someone with our soul. Now let me ask you, who do you want to trust? Some CBS news anchor that tries to tell you you can't trust Christianity and does nothing to even address the three major problems I just told you about? Confucius, just hope that he got it right before he died. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, the list could go on and on and on. Who, who do you want to trust with your soul? I submit to you, it better be the only one who ever rose from the dead. That's why this matters. And brothers and sisters, we as a church must again get back to this truth that this is not about what we as the church 
think versus the rest of the folks in the world. That is a, don't ever get baited into that argument. That's a losing argument. It's not about what does the church think. It's about what does the Bible say. That's it. Now, you can say you don't believe in the Bible, fine. But this is not an argument over what I think is morally right versus what you think is morally right. This is simply us as a people of God saying we believe the word of God on the authority that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore what he says is what matters. It's not what I say that matters. It's not what I think that matters. It's not my opinion on political matters or the LGBT community matters or anything. My opinion is not what's important. And the role of any good pastor, and I would say any true Christian, brothers and sisters, our role is not to be giving the world our opinions. Our role is to know what this says and simply tell people what this says. It's not a matter of whether you believe me or not. It's a matter of whether you believe God or not. So I want to look today quickly at seven statements. I will call them crucial statements that Jesus spoke. Because again, what he said matters. So what does Jesus say? Number one, Matthew 5, verses 28 through 29. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus said the hour is coming when all will be judged. He clearly tells us that each and every one of us will one day stand before God and answer to God for our lives. That's what Jesus said. That's important. That means you, and I ask you the question this morning, are you prepared? Are you ready for that meeting when you will in fact stand before God and give an account? He teaches us here and multitudes of places elsewhere. He teaches us here that there's only two destinations. One is heaven, the other is hell. There's no in-between. There's no getting from one to the other. There's no uh, place of torment where eventually after you pay for your sins, you get into heaven a little bit later than everybody else. No, that's not how it works. There's a final judgment and there are only two destinations This is important. Concerning what's going to happen in life after, I want to trust the one who rose from the dead. I want to to believe the one who demonstrated that he is, in fact, God. Number two, Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, this is encouraging. On one hand, he says, you need to understand something very clear. There is a judgment that's coming. But on the other hand, he said, you need to understand the reason I came. I came to seek and save the lost. Can you hear the heart of Jesus this morning? He's not an angry, hateful, burnout God that's just mad that everybody's not following him. He said, I came to seek and save the lost. The... uh, Analogy that Jesus is giving is one that's way more familiar with people in that time than ours. 
It's the analogy of a shepherd going after a sheep. In fact, Jesus references himself as a shepherd many times. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And he talks about the good shepherd or the shepherd who leaves the 99 of his flock to go find the one. You know, often what would happen is a sheep would get away from the rest of them. Sheep are not very intelligent animals. They also don't have a lot of sight. They can't see very far. And they get far enough away, they don't know how to get back. And they're in danger, and there's, they need help, and they need protection. So what happens is the shepherd has to leave the 99, and he has to go find the one before the wolf gets to it. Jesus says, that's the way I see people. Like, you're, you're not supposed to be out there. You are out there. But originally, you were supposed to be part of the family of God. God created you in his image. And God does not want anybody to go to hell. God sent his son to seek and save the lost. I remember when I got saved, there was this part of me that felt like I was searching for God. And I kind of was But really, the reason I was is because the shepherd came seeking for me and began dealing with my heart and turning my heart. There may be somebody here this morning, you feel that tug deep in your spirit and you know that God is calling you to him. This is evidence that the son of man has come to seek you. And not just to seek you, but to save you. Jesus said, that's what I'm here to do. To seek and save the lost. Number three. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I want to focus on three words. The, the, and the. Jesus said, I am the way. Not one of many. Not the best of all the choices that you have. Not a really important one to consider. The, as in single, as in only, as in there's no other option. He is the way. I will say it again. This is why this isn't a conversation of Christianity is not even meant to be a conversation about what's morally right. What do we think? What do we feel? What do we all decide is right? Let's take a vote. What did Jesus say? He is the way. He said he is the truth. The life. There's no life outside of Jesus. Everything else is death, compounded upon death, that ends in death and ultimately leads to the second death, which is an eternal forever death. There is no life outside of Jesus. And he says in the same verse, the fourth crucial statement spoken by Jesus, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Nobody gets another route. There's only one way. That's what he said, right? There's no other route. Everybody in this place, if you're going to get to heaven, there's only one way. That's through Jesus. You can't get there by being a good person. You can't get there by giving so much. You can't get there by serving on so many things. You can't get there by weighing out the scales of good versus bad. There's only one way, and that is through Jesus. 
Number five, Jesus said in Matthew 7 and 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. We've got to square with that, brothers and sisters. Jesus said those that make it are few. It's not the majority. It's few. He said the road is narrow. It's not broad. There's not a bunch of paths. Would you agree with me that that's what Christianity has degenerated into? This false teaching of the broad path. Everybody's ultimately saved. Everybody's going to heaven. It's not true. It's not what Jesus said. I'm going to trust the one who rose from the dead. He said it, there are few. And I ask you the question this morning, are you part of the few? Are you truly living for Jesus? Bonus scripture. You get eight this morning, but this one's not up there. Bonus scripture, Luke 13 and 3 and Luke 13 and 5, Jesus says it two times, repent lest ye perish. He says it again, repent lest you perish. There's no salvation without repentance. That means turn from your sinning, stop your sinning, stop your wickedness, stop your lying, stop your stealing, stop your fornicating, stop your sinning, stop it. And if you haven't, if you have not repented and turned your life to Jesus, you need to know that the one who rose from the dead says, you better repent or else you're going to perish. And he loved us enough to tell us. Despite all of our wickedness, despite living how we want to live, doing what we want to do, basically waving a fist at God and saying, I won't live according to your rules, he still loved us enough to come to us, to warn us, and then to die for us so that we could, in fact, be forgiven when we would turn to him. Number six, Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know what Jesus teaches us in this verse? That he alone is the one that is capable of satisfying the soul. He's talking about the inner hunger, the inner thirst that nobody can satisfy but Jesus I remember spending years of my life, wasting years of my life, trying to find purpose and meaning and some type of reason for who I was. I was thirsty and hungry for, for in, in the depth of my soul. And it wasn't until I found Jesus that that thirst and that hunger were forever met. It's been talked about as this black hole deep in the heart of man and woman that can never be filled by anybody but Jesus. And you can spend the world searching. You can taste wealth. You can taste success. You can taste the, the temporary pleasures of lust. You can taste everything that this world has to offer and you will still be hungry and you will still be thirsty because Jesus said, 
I am the bread that you need. I am what you thirst for. And he said, when you come to him, then you will not hunger and then you will not thirst. And finally, the seventh crucial statement spoken by Jesus this morning, we find in John chapter three and verse three, he starts off by saying, truly, truly. Everything that Jesus said was important. But when he started a statement with truly, truly, it was actually real common in this era of time when you were saying something super important to start it off that way. Basically, it's like this. Listen up. I got your attention. That's what it was like when Jesus said, truly, truly. Now, here's the statement. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You want to be saved? Jesus said there's only one way. You have to be born again. I love that the Bible records for us the response of Nicodemus here because all of us have a similar response. I guess it sounds weird. What's that mean? Nicodemus, being kind and honest with Jesus, trying to figure this thing out, said, how can I possibly go back into my mother's womb and be born again? He was confused. It was an odd statement. But he knew that Jesus meant it. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, when the wind comes, you don't know how it's generated. You don't know where it comes from. And you don't know where it's going, but you know that the wind has come. So it is with being born again. Like you don't really understand how it happens and where it's going to lead, but you know when it happens. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, when the Holy Spirit is moving and stirring inside of your soul, you know. And basically what Jesus is saying is, you don't have to totally understand how it all works. You simply need to know that it works. And when it works, you will know you must be born again. That's an important statement. I leave you with that this morning. And I ask the question, have you been born again? Is Jesus truly your Lord this morning? Nothing matters more than what Jesus said. Nothing. This morning, do you know him?